Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I also invite you, while you're there, click the link to my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at films that are currently out in theaters or on VOD. You can find all that information at my website, Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be looking at a film that's not quite from the 1980s. It was actually from the 70s, 1979 to be precise. But because I'm going to be talking about the sequel to this film, it definitely merits going back a year from the decade to look at the 1979 all-time science fiction horror classic called Alien. Of course, a lot is written about this. I could probably talk about this film for... Pretty much several episodes, but I'm going to try to limit it down to a 20-minute, maybe maybe even up to 30-minute podcast here. Alien is an R-rated film. It does have quite a bit of gore, some scary moments, violence, and language. The runtime, well, it depends on which cut you watch, but the runtime generally an hour and 57 minutes, at least according to the one that I watched. Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, Ian Holm, Yafik Kato, Veronica Cartwright, John Hurt, and Harry Dean Stanton. Ridley Scott is the director, really the movie that put him on the map, although he had done The Duelists, which was a critically acclaimed film before this one. Dan O'Bannon gets sole credit for the screenplay, even though it was rewritten quite a few times by some of the producers of this film. Now, obviously, Alien, it's a benchmark science fiction movie. It's a simple premise. It is given here, though, very profound and complex treatment in the way that it's made as a film. It's also one of the scariest horror films of its or really any era, although its Oscar-winning visual effects have been eclipsed many times over since. Alien remains one of the very few films made in the 1970s that stands up as well today, I think, as it had been in the year it was released. It's a 40-year-old film. It does not look it, except for by comparing how young the well-known actors, well-known today at least, look in the film. Now, the film begins in the year 2122, so it's set in the future. It's on board this commercial towing vessel called the Nostromo. It has a mostly blue-collar crew. There are five men and two women. They're awakened prematurely from their flight back home while they're in deep space from this cryogenic slumber somewhere far but still getting closer to Earth. The reason for their early disturbance has to do with the company's policy to investigate potential alien life forms that may be in the vicinity. So when it appears that there's this SOS signal that's being transmitted from a moon in their relative vicinity, their overriding primary mission changes to checking out that situation. So upon landing on this desolate moon, the scientists discover what appear to be eggs containing another form of life, one of which hatches and then latches itself onto one of the crew and they're unable to remove this creature so they end up bringing the man with this latched life form back on board the Nostromo where it begins to grow at a rapid pace and eventually becomes one of the deadliest killing machines humankind has ever faced. Now the idea for Alien came from the mind of its screenwriter Dan O'Bannon who constructed it along with his friend Ronald Schusset They combined elements of a screenplay that O'Bannon had been working on for some time, which was about gremlins who attacked the crew on board a B-17 Flying Fortress. He had another story idea in progress 
initially called Memory, that contained horror-based narrative ideas that he had concocted but he ended up not using for his mostly comedic prior effort, this film school project that turned into a feature film for his then-friend John Carpenter that he helped to write and edit and design and star in, that was called Dark Star. The unused idea that he had for Dark Star, which was a spaceship, answers a strange distress signal on a mysterious planet, and there's this alien being that ends up attaching to one of the rescue party's face and then later escapes his body, notably. This was all inspired by Dan O'Bannon's own experience with Crohn's disease, which he compared to the feeling of having a beast growing inside him, wanting to get out. Now, this new screenplay that they had worked on had the initial title of Star Beast. They eventually changed it to Alien due to its more ambiguous connotations in the various meanings of the word, as well as seeming less silly than just Star Beast. And despite this, the film's title would be translated in most non-English speaking parts of the world at the time to simply just the eighth passenger. Alien was to be an homage to the science fiction and horror films that came out in the 1950s that O'Bannon had been very enamored of, especially 1958's It, The Terror from Beyond Space. It combines space exploration with this monster-in-the-house atmosphere is mostly meant for fun, but also terror. Kind of a B-movie, but with a lot of meta sensibilities. Now, after the screenplay was completed, O'Bannon found no takers for his film. 20th Century Fox initially deemed the story too grim, too violent. Several other studios also passed as well for similar reasons. There were really no takers, except for one, a B-movie outfit, Roger Corman's New World Pictures, who offered O'Bannon the chance to create his own effort on a fairly shoestring budget, but it's just that the co-story writer wisely encouraged O'Bannon not to accept this offer due to the science fiction craze that was growing in the wake of Star Wars. The screenplay eventually found its way to Brandywine Studios, a small studio that had ties to 20th Century Fox that was run by the production team of Walter Hill, David Geiler, and Gordon Carroll. They bought the option to make this film into a movie for a really low cost of only $1,000. Walter Hill ended up overhauling the script over the next several days after securing the deal. He had a lot of creative input from his partner, David Geiler. They added more suspense elements and less out-and-out horror, and then ended up repitching the idea to Fox with the stipulation that Walter Hill was likely going to be the one to direct. The studio's president at the time, Alan Ladd Jr., was sold on the idea of this new script, especially with its ending that he felt echoed the shower scene in Psycho. He felt like audiences would absolutely go for this mix of shock and suspense in space. They really pitched this as this combination of two of the most successful films of the 1970s, Jaws and Star Wars, which had been running up unheard of box office numbers for 20th Century Fox at the time of this pitch. And that increased the desire by them to greenlight more space adventures like Alien. As the production for Alien would start to get up to speed, Walter Hill would become unavailable. He started his production on another film called The Warriors. That led to looking at other directors. One included respected veteran director Robert Aldrich. He was consulted as a possibility, a very strong one, but was subsequently passed over because he didn't seem to share the same vision for the film that producers were looking for. He regarded it as just a paycheck project. Several other directors were looked at but passed on it as well, and that led Ladd eventually to give the reins to a relative newcomer called Ridley Scott. He was a veteran television commercial director who had made a pretty nice critical debut for the 1977 film called The Duelists, which Ladd particularly enjoyed. And despite making two 
real masterworks of the science fiction film genre. I mean, Ridley Scott followed up Alien with Blade Runner. He was not all that much a fan of science fiction going into the films until he saw Star Wars. In fact, before Star Wars, Ridley Scott considered 2001 A Space Odyssey to be the only worthwhile science fiction film that he had seen. So Scott decided not to dwell on the whiz-bang nature of space travel and instead kept everything very grounded in his approach to making Alien. He preferred to set the tone by building up tension to mount this story as a suspense thriller first, not as a science fiction film. Now, the first order of business for Ridley Scott was to make an alien that audiences would find truly frightening, something which few filmmakers who made aliens in the past had tended to do. They made science fiction films that, looking at it today, bordered on laughable. So he really wanted to make something terrifying. Scott ended up viewing on O'Bannon's suggestion a print of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Scott wanted audiences to grip their armrests in apprehension and fright every time they suspected the alien might show its ugly visage on the screen. So Scott ended up going over models and designs, hundreds and hundreds of designs of alien creatures, until O'Bannon ended up handing him a book by the work of Swiss artist H.R. Geiger, someone who O'Bannon was introduced to while he was working on the never-completed Dune project, the adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune for Alejandro Jodorowsky. Really, Scott found the surreal biomechanical art to be truly unnerving and yet still very captivating. He keyed into one particular phallus-inspired illustration by Geiger called Necronom 4. That was the one he wanted his creature to be modeled after for Alien. He secured Geiger to come up with other storyboarded designs, and that led to other nightmarish aspects within the film, from the embryonic nature of the creature's origin to its impregnation and its so-called birth, to the design of the artifacts on the alien planet, to the look of the interior of the ship. To get some more of the science fiction aspects, they also consulted with other futuristic artists O'Bannon had gotten familiar with while they were in Paris working on Dune. Jean Giraud, a.k.a. Mobius, Ron Cobb, and Chris Foss, they especially all worked on the design of the spacesuits and the technology aboard the Nostromo. And despite Fox and Brandywine's push to give Walter Hill and David Geiler screenwriting credit and O'Bannon a story by credit, there was arbitration that ended up taking place with the Writers Guild proved unsuccessful for the makers of the film. The Writers Guild still ended up awarding O'Bannon the sole credit for the script that Brandywine felt was too elementary and unsophisticated without the ideas that they had brought on board during the rewrite phase. For instance, they changed all the names of the characters. They changed the name of the ship from the Snark to the Nostromo, which was an homage to a Joseph Conrad novel, also called Nostromo, that was about mining because the spaceship is a space-bound mining vessel of a sort. They also developed the inclusion and the surprise nature of the character called Ash and his conspiratorial connection to the Wayland yutani Corporation. That was an aspect O'Bannon particularly hated, and he continues to think unnecessary. They flipped two of the characters to female. This was Foxhead Alan Ladd Jr.'s suggestion. O'Bannon, who wrote them as men in mind, but he said that they could be unisex roles if they wanted to. O'Bannon stated that the only character that he felt should absolutely be male was the one who would come to be known as Kane, so as not to change the nature of the character's metamorphosis to a perverse and sexualized metaphor had it been a female. 
They also turned one of the female characters that they had in mind into the lead, and they introduced a cat on board the vessel. They also changed the tone of the story from this 1950s pastiche science fiction film to the more grittier and edgier tone of earlier, darker horror cinema, but with the more realistic and natural dialogue that was in vogue in the 1970s. Now, to fill that female character, that lead female character of Ripley, Meryl Streep was Ridley Scott's top choice, but it was an inopportune time at that time to approach Meryl Streep with such a bleak motion picture. She was still mourning the loss of her then-romantic partner, John Casale, to cancer. And subsequently, at the suggestion rumored, Warren Beatty made to David Geiler after seeing Sigourney Weaver do a little work as a stage actress. He was very impressed with her. He told Geiler to give her a look. Weaver, at that time, was unknown to films. And purely coincidentally, she had also been a classmate of Meryl Streep's at Yale Drama School. Weaver was called in a number of times before they were sure that she was the one that they wanted to go with for Ripley. And initially, she was looked at for Lambert. Veronica Cartwright at the time was slotted for Ripley, but she moved over into the Lambert role once Weaver accepted Ripley as the role. Unlike some of the others in the cast, Sigourney Weaver's box office appeal was absolute zero, and that prompted her to accept the offer for this role for only $30,000. If you contrast this to the cost of the Xenomorph suit, the Xenomorph, how Ridley Scott tends to refer to the alien... That suit cost $250,000 to make, including an additional suit that was to be used by a stuntman, despite only being used in a few moments of screen time. In fact, the Xenomorph is only on the screen, whether in its initial suit, the stuntman suit, or using some sort of puppetry, four minutes of the total screen time. Inhabiting the Xenomorph suit was a very thin, approximately seven foot tall, depending on where you read it, and he's somewhere between 6'10 and 7'2", a Nigerian named Bolaji Badejo. He was a graphic art student who was discovered by one of the casting directors while in a London pub one night. He inhabited this full-body xenomorph suit, which had to be redesigned for his features, and was promptly trained with Tai Chi and pantomime techniques to play the part convincingly. Now, due to the aforementioned success of Star Wars, 20th Century Fox decided to put more money into the sets, into the effects work, than they would in securing big-name stars to try to sell the picture. However, it would become clear that they were going to have to take a chance with this release. Scott's conceptual push for the film would mean having to invest more money into the effort. Due to the widening scale of the undertaking, especially after Geiger's designs were brought on board, the initial $3 million budget eventually grew to $5 million, and then $8 million, and then they finally settled just under $11 million. And then they had an additional $16 million on top of that to push out the advertisements and the promotion prior to its eventual release. And because of the investment and the Star Wars swing to more optimistic adventures, Ridley Scott's originally intended bleaker ending, which I won't reveal, but you can find that online somewhere, it was altered significantly at the behest of the studio. In fact, they told Scott if he intended to go forward with the ending, they were just going to end up firing him and bringing him someone else to complete the picture. Now, although much of the formula that Alien would popularize has been lifted many, many times in science fiction over the years, there's still this intangible quality of Ridley Scott's direction that keeps Alien head and shoulders above all of the imitators that have come out since. Unlike other science fiction films, Alien is decidedly grimy, it's low-tech, it showcases not only the relative boredom of space travel, but also the terror of its infinite isolation. Set design is definitely a strength. 
The ship they are all on feels like a freighter with its hulking size and its cluttered denseness. It provides plenty of shelter for a man-eating creature to camouflage. And for such a horrific suspense film, there's really a quiet beauty to the way that it builds up. It takes a deliberate amount of time setting up the struggles. The desolation of space is always apparent, even when you can't see it. One thing that Alien should get credit for that viewers often forget, given how ingrained in popular culture the series has become, is its reveals, its revelatory narrative, set it apart from anything that had come before. I mean, we all know today that Sigourney Weaver would become known for her portrayal as the hero of the entire Alien franchise. But at the time of filming, Weaver was the least well-known among the cast. Tom Skerritt got top billing, as I mentioned, and reportedly Harrison Ford was briefly considered for Skerritt's role of Dallas, but he ended up declining. He didn't want to follow up one big science fiction motion picture set in space with another he ended up teaming up with Ridley Scott, of course, on his next picture, Blade Runner. Now, as far as those reveals, Sigourney Weaver's character would become the linchpin by the end of the film. That would be a surprise for those seeing the film for the first time. Not only was she the least well-known, but she was a woman, which in terms of horror films was fairly common, you know, the final girl. But in terms of science fiction films, usually the hero was always a man by the end of the film. Also, the nature of character of Ash, who was not in O'Bannon's original script at all, he was a character added shortly before production began to give a more sinister backstory to the mission and to provide a futuristic twist. Ash has given no buildup at all in the story, so it's a truly shocking moment when it's revealed what his nature is, perhaps just as shocking as the moment where Kane reveals why he is not feeling good at the dinner table. Now add to this, most people going into the film for the first time in 1979 had no idea what the alien would look like. They would be mortified at its nature and the body horror elements incurred by its predatory activities. Although it's hard to put out of your mind all of these things given how we take for granted all of these elements, it might seem tame today, but for its era, this was really a true shocker in the world of cinema. Now, the rapport among this fine set of character actors is particularly impressive. Although all of them have relatively few lines of dialogue, you instantly recognize that these are people that have known each other intimately for a very long time. Conversations have a naturalistic flow, typical blue-collar working stiffs talking over each other. They wink to one another as if inside jokes are commonplace. The reason for this has to do kind of with a happenstance. The actors were growing bored during the long delays that were necessary in getting the technical nature of each scene up to Scott's standards, so they would engage in some improvisation beyond their scripted dialogue, which Yafik Kato and Harry Dean Stanton did whenever possible, sometimes to the deliberate annoyance of the rest of the cast, although it does end up fitting in with the nature of a crew acting as a family who've grown to both love and annoy one another through the closeness of their environment. Ridley Scott actually encouraged this. He actually chose these actors because they would know what would work best on their own without a lot of input from him. He needed most of his time to be sure that the technical parts were all moving as they should. So it's in this sense of realism, not only in its dialogue, but also their reactions during the terrifying chain of events that makes the horrific elements of Alien that much more effective. Bleakness and isolation, the terror starts immediately when you realize that these people are all alone in the middle of nowhere, no means of escape, no chance of rescue, hence the immortal tagline, in space, no one can hear you scream. There's an unstoppable killer on board. There seems to be no way to contain it. 
Jerry Goldsmith's score is sparse. It only comes into play on rare occasions. It makes the silence during some of the more intense scenes all the more effective in eliciting tension. H.R. Geiger's technosexual, insecto-reptilian xenomorph designs are grotesquely horrific, yet wholly intriguing. The stuff of nightmares among many viewers of this film is one of the few cinematic monsters that are as truly frightening in full light as we imagine it to be in the shadows. But the real star of Alien would end up being Ridley Scott himself. In only his second effort as a feature film director and his first in the science fiction genre, his sense of tone and buildup, where not much horrific happens for a long time before things do, but when it does, it leaves such an indelible impression that you're actually scared, even when nothing is going on. That's the mark of a brilliant filmmaker. Along with his next film, Blade Runner, Scott would prove to be one of the most influential science fiction visionaries of all time, from somebody who was not into science fiction at all coming up as a filmmaker. Though despite his early success, he would stay away from the genre he had mastered so quickly for the next 30 years or so. The promotion for Alien targeted the science fiction community who came out in droves for Star Wars. It would be released in the same month as Star Wars, May Fox was hoping lightning could strike twice. Of course, Star Wars was an optimistic all-ages fantasy adventure, alien here a hard R-rated bleak horror film that did not inspire repeat viewings, so expectations of a repeat of the success of Star Wars might have been a bit on the ambitious side, even though the film did do remarkably well. It racked up nearly $60 million in the summer of 1979 within the United States and took in over $100 million if you take into account its worldwide haul. All of that placed it very firmly as a top 10 performer for the year. Although Alien is considered a masterwork today, reviews of the film at the time ran somewhere between mixed and generally good, with many critics at the time seeing the film as little more than a standard haunted house film set in space. While undeniably tense and scary, they said, with award-winning visual effects work, Critics felt that the characters lacked sufficient development and the plot ran on the thin side. It was dismissed as a rather inconsequential B-movie, but with a big budget at its core. And despite all of these initial critical takes, Alien would go on to become a staple of the rental market and on cable, and it eventually drew in enough interest to give the story a sequel in 1986 with Aliens that would cement the film's status as one of the greatest science fiction films of all time. Along with Ripley as arguably the best female hero in a horror franchise, Ridley Scott would return to the franchise yet again in 2012 for a prequel of sorts, Prometheus, as well as its follow-up that ties much more of the backstory of the xenomorph origins called Alien Covenant. Although Alien was ahead of its time, it's also a horror film from the old school in many respects. It never lets you really get a good glimpse of the object of everyone's fears until the time is just right. And by that time, we're so mortified by what it can do that true terror is achieved with certitude. And that's why, with each passing year, the status of Alien as a classic becomes more and more secure. It's absolutely essential viewing for anyone into science fiction and or horror. And for that, I'm giving Alien an easy four stars. Four stars out of four, which on my scale means I recommend it to anyone. Obviously, I would not let my seven-year-old daughter watch this or anyone who is not inured to this kind of level of violence. But if you are somebody who is willing to take a chance, you really can't do much better than Alien. Four stars out of four is what I'm giving it. By the way, 
There was a director's cut that came out in 2003 that shortens some of the scenes of the theatrical release. It adds some others. It's not a true director's cut. It was put together by the request of many fans of Alien who wanted to see what the film would look like with some of their favorite deleted scenes that were found in a studio vault years later, placed back into the movie. They're interesting, but I think that the differences are not significant enough to the overall impact of the film to merit that as the definitive version. Really, Scott has subsequently come out to state that he actually considers the theatrical cut to be his truest version of the film. The director's cut title was only done by the studio for marketing purposes and to sell future DVDs and, I guess, Blu-rays down the road. So the theatrical cut should probably be your first experience, and then you can watch the director's cut as a curiosity it definitely does enlighten some things about the way that they were planning on going at various points of the filmmaking process so regardless of that definitely recommend it obviously if i'm going back to review alien uh, the next episode of this show is going to be on its follow-up 1986's aliens which was not directed by ridley scott but by another visionary director it turns out called james cameron some people, a great many people, for a long time considered Aliens to be a superior film to Alien, and although that has gone back and forth. In fact, my opinion on that has gone back and forth. I'll get into which one, if any, I consider to be the superior film of the Alien franchise when I cover Aliens from 1986 next week on Around the World in 80s Movies. Until then, thanks everyone for listening. Don't forget you can go to my website, find my contact information, my email address, my Twitter handle, my link to my Facebook page, and I just started posting on Instagram so you can find all of the information on where to find all of that at my website at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Until next time, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world, even though I go back to the 1970s sometimes in 80s movies. <laughs>